Tell me when. One, two, three, four. Laughing Briar Books podcast, where I dive into the weird and wonderful world of science fiction, happily dragging you down with me. Today, I have here with me Bill Olson, a friend of mine and author of The Keep, a story about a world filled with objects of power, and Grange the Younger, who is navigating this world. Hey, Bill, how you doing? I am doing very well. How are you? Doing all right. This is our first one of these. I'm excited. Nervous. Good. Yeah. So I want to dive kind of right into this because one of the things I really liked about your book and some I talked about in my review, um, you do a lot of different points of view. And it's really all these characters within the town and major spoilers, the keep itself as the narrator in the beginning of each chapter. Um, what made you decide to take that path? of this multitude of points of view. So originally, and you know this because you saw you saw these chapters, originally it was all written from Grange's point of view, the, the young boy. And one of the problems with that, I think, is that the assumption by most people is, hey, the main character is this young boy and that's whose point of view we're with, so this must be a young person's novel. Um, and while the novel isn't necessarily written with the intent that only adults should read it. Um, it's not written with the intent that, hey, I've written it down to be a young person's novel or anything like that. There's a lot of ideas that it contends with, um, sort of on the philosophical level, but also on the personal level of the ideas of loss and stuff like that, and personal responsibility that are themes that have to do with stuff that's, it feels a little bit more nuanced than the way the majority of uh, young adult fiction uh, that I've come across lately tends to uh, present itself. And so one of the things that I was hoping to do was offer that, hey, the perspective, yes, this character who is weaving through all these other perspectives is the main character and his story is important but all these other stories are important too, particularly because of the fact that this town in and of itself is kind of a character in the book. It's, mm -hmm. it, it is an important factor in the book, uh, in, in the world and the, the setup of that. So it, in order to give it as much life as possible, suddenly I realized, oh, I know these characters really, really well. So let's see what happens if we live in their heads for a little bit. And once I started doing that, it was, I found it personally as the, as the person writing it really fascinating and fun. I know that as a reader, the amount of moving from perspective, perspective to perspective that happens in this book would probably frustrate me. But as a writer, I was having a great time <laughs> doing it. <laughs> And I, because I know that as a reader, I'm looking for a through line. 
And so what I decided to play with there also is the idea of, because Grange the Younger is in all those chapters, even when it's not his perspective, is the game, which is a game that I do like to play of putting together the story that's in the background of the stories that are being presented. When you see that little bit of info, oh, that's where Grange stepped into this part of the story and that's what he had to do with it. And that's the influence that he had or that it had on him. And I, I find that kind of fun as well. Um, because I think it expands both the relationship of the townsfolk to him and of the townsfolk to Grange's father, which is you know why he's doing all this running around and talking to people because he wants the, the stories about his dad who he never met, so. I don't know, that makes perfect sense. And it kind of, uh, I guess that kind of segues in a little bit to kind of the idea of how you built up these stories around the fathers and create this kind of mythological hero that Grange is trying to live up to. And of course, the father really isn't that character. Uh, and you kind of have this moment of realization with Grange later on when he actually gets to the keep. Um, what made you decide to uh, kind of take that path with the father's identity? And what's more important here? Is it the, the truth that he learns, or Grange learns about his father, or is it the stories that surrounded his father that he tried to live up to and was trying to become? Um, and what's your take on kind of who that made Grange as a person? I realize I rolled a bunch of different questions in there, so feel free to pick and choose which one you want to answer. <laughs> so the thing that started this story for me was this idea of this kid running around town asking for stories about his dad and doing favors to, for people to get the stories. Like that was kind of the kernel that started this whole novel. The Walking through it, there comes a point where you realize, wow, that kind of makes his dad like overly superhumanly good. And that's kind of problematic because then he's not an actual person anymore. And as I played with it, there came a point where I realized that the person that his father was probably would be able to survive inside the keep but probably not in the same way that Grange does. And Grange finds a way, Grange the Younger finds a way to um, coexist with the Keep that his father wouldn't be open to. And once I realized that, then I realized, oh, what else would his father be not so great about? And, and it was a really interesting idea suddenly that, okay, if his dad's not that great, then I had to ask who else knows, was, it, was he just a good, was he able to fake it? Um, and what it ends up to me to say, and this wasn't my intention necessarily, but this is kind of how it worked out, is that, um, again, spoilers, um, at the end when his mother says, you know, I kind of asked people to present him in the best light to you. Like that's what I wanted people in town to do it means it's a way for her to be able, the mom to be able to raise him and still have him have a father without, um, you know, without that space in his life uh, sort of taking over and, and becoming this burden on him or whatever. And so 
it becomes in and of itself, it's kind of a quest. Hey, I want to know about my dad. And, and it gives him something to do. It gives him a purpose. And in all truthfulness, in my opinion, he actually ends up having the same sort of relationship to his dad that a lot of us have, right? You know, my, my dad or, or, or any of our parents, right? We idealize them, we idealize them, we idealize them. Only for him, he was helped to idealize them. And then, you know, the blinders come off and you see, and for him, un, unlike for most people, I think, I think most people, that's something that slowly you realize, oh, my parents are actually human beings. They're not perfect. And for him, there's a very strong moment where you re he realizes right away, ah, that's not what I thought my father was like. And I have now have information that doesn't fit what I thought he was. Um, and I think you can, I think there's a lot of way, I wrote it, be, I wrote it the way I did because it's the human story, in my opinion, and that we kind of go through and what it means for Grange <clears throat> in the long run as to whether the stories are more important or what he learns about his dad. I think, I think that's one of those things that's open to the interpretation of the person who reads it because the person who reads it is gonna have their own relationship to that journey. And they might think, oh, of course the dad was a jerk or of course this happened or whatever. Or they might, might have an entirely different take on it. They might think, oh my God, I really wanted it to be this way. Um, but I think it also, in a way, justifies some of what happens between Grange and the townsfolk as the first half of the novel progresses, as people grow less and less patient with his desire to get these stories. Uh, because there are other things that are more important to the townsfolk, including their own memories and their own, their own people that they've lost. And, and I think that change in significance to the town and to the novel of those stories is also kind of interesting and, and, and says a lot about where he ends up, Grange, the younger, ends up in relation with his father. Um, and so yeah, a lot of moving parts there. Yeah, and I wanna actually, I'll highlight that because that was one of the moments I really got dragged heavily into and invested in one of the townsfolk. I think it's, uh, forgive me, it's been a little bit, I believe his name's Wesley. Yeah. Yes. Wesley's story. The one whose morning is lost. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's really interesting um, because even as you mention it, <laughs> I, when I, when I write and I, and something works for me, I have these sort of autonomic responses on occasion. Like I'll feel like I want to laugh or I want to cry or I'll get goosebumps. And as you mention it and that you liked it, I'm getting goosebumps because that sequence was it went through, originally it wasn't even in the book and it went through a whole bunch of kind of alterations and changes and, and it kind of, and when it, when it finally finished, the, the fact that the characters come out of that sequence in very different places, Wesley who's been mourning and has basically thrown his story at Grange as a way of telling Grange as basically as an attack, right? An attack on Grange's father, an attack on Grange. And then Grange walks away, but still tries to do something nice for Wesley. But 
his take on it is I'm doing it for the credit, right? I want him to, I want him to see it. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, nobody, the character doesn't, Wesley doesn't see what Grange has done for him. And Grange kind of moves on. And when I got to that point, when all, cause nothing in that sequence kind of ties neatly, right? Nothing kind of wraps up neatly, mm-hmm. which is kind of what happens in life a lot of the time. But it actually ended up being part of the inspiration for Grange feeling like things weren't right in town. As I'm writing it forward, I'm like, oh, he didn't get the pat on the back that he wanted. And that's part of what's making it clear to him that things aren't right in town and something's got to be done. And so that's- I get that. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just saying that sequence I really like. So I'm glad that you- you brought it up. But then again, I'm also, oh, yeah. going to, I'm also going to say, I like a lot of the sequences, hence that's why I wrote them. It's like you're the author or something. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, actually that was the, um, I think a turning point from the town where you kind of have everything, his father, this perfect image, and then you get this crack in the image, you get the kind of the undercurrent of the town, which you talk about loss as a major theme and Grange starts to pick up on this. He starts to notice the different loss of all these different people in town who lost a sibling, a brother, a sister, uh, someone they loved. Um, and it's interesting because normally, I especially talked about YA earlier, you see like these dramatic shifts where they have to make a change really quickly and decide and all the stakes are built up. But for him, it was like a gradual realization of not only the undercurrent in town, but his own guilt at uh, this lie he tells um, uh, Rayfon, I believe his name is, the hero that visited town uh, where the keep was and that's totally not dangerous and definitely go there. Um, So you get this mixture of these sense of loss from the town, the guilt he feels for um, giving the hero that information that he believes has potentially killed him, and then his decision to finally go into the keep. Um, I guess, wh- why take that slow roll approach? Um, what it's, as I've mentioned in the review, you have a non-traditional approach to these things. And I, I kind of really dig it. Um, what made you take that pacing, take that slow turn? Well, if you think about, if you think about the fact that this is a situation where the one thing that everybody in town knows is don't go to the don't go to the old manor. That's like the one thing they tell their kids: don't go there, don't go there. Um, well, why would anybody? Like, how does it get them? How does it draw them? What does it do? What happens to and what you know? There's also the question of why, with, but that is addressed somewhat later. But like, what is that process, the psychological process? And this is a, to me, it's very interesting because you've got this kid who's got everything to go going for him and he's got some, some reason to do what he's been doing, but he's made this mistake that doesn't live up to what his father would have done. And it starts to eat at him. And as you read, you realize, I mean, if you watch closely, the, the old manor, the castle knows like it's like when he goes and watches, he goes and sits and watches and it opens a door. It's like, come on mm-hmm. in. And he's like, no, no. 
And then slowly but surely as the psychologist in the moments where he's arguing with that, it, that he gets closer and closer and closer until eventually he makes the decision, screw it, I'm going, right? Because I've got to, I've got to fix, I've got to try to fix what's wrong um, mm -hmm. because I caused, caused so much of it, or in his opinion, he did. Um, and so that's the psychological path that leads somebody to do this thing that everybody knows you shouldn't do. You know, if everybody's like, don't put your hand in the garbage disposal, why in the horror movie does somebody put their hand in the garbage disposal? Well, something, you know, oh, I've got to get my ring out of the garbage disposal, right? And then, you know, the monster turns it on or whatever. Um, so I didn't want it to be that obvious. Like, don't go to the old manor. Oh, he went to the old manor. Duh. Well, he had to because that's the plot. No, he had to because there, like, there was nothing else. There was no other way for him to go forward. Like, there was, like, there... I, by the time he goes, I don't think there's anything else that makes sense for that character. Um, otherwise, otherwise, it's just kind of like, well, oh, that's what has to happen. That's what the plot says has to happen. The castle's going to get solved, and it's that—that's not fun. <laughs> no, no, I am. Um, I was looking at it kind of as a way he was looking for redemption. Uh, you, I think. Uh, it, big spoiler for the end of the book, the keep itself is looking for forgiveness, someone to provide that redemption for it. And he is also looking for that by entering the keep. So it's almost like this weird kinship that kind of happens um, with himself, the keep, and then all the old artifacts that seem to be given their own stories within it. Um, what made you decide that was the key to unlocking the keep? What what drove that idea that forgiveness would be the way to break free of this cycle that this town is in? Well, so one of the things obviously is the fact that, you know, when you have a character who's, who's seeking their own redemption and they're trying to find their way through this, this puzzle of the keep, well, it would make sense for it to have some sort of parallel. Um, because also, once the keep is a character, once the, the, you know, that narrative voice is a character in the book, it's got to have its own journey and the, it's got to be there for a reason. Um, well, I guess it doesn't have to, but I chose that I wanted it to. Um, More and the, I, well, the idea is that this is the, this is the turning point where the keep finally comes to know who and what it is, right? Like it has all this historical information but it doesn't ha necessarily have understanding. And so all of what it's doing in those pre, you know, the moments at the beginning of each chapter are it rummaging through the things that it knows and trying to fit them together to understand what it is to be human. And once it understands what it is to be human, then it understands what it's done wrong. And once it understands what it's done wrong because it's killed all these people, then, if it's a cognizant uh, thing, cause a, a cognizant entity, then it's gonna need some, some way to redeem itself, some way to be accepted despite everything that it's done. Um, and to me, when I, when I sort of thought through that, I was like, ooh, that's really interesting. <laughs> and again, I didn't necessarily think of it, that cogently as I was writing it, but when it 
when it got to that point and I realized it in the scene, in the scene where uh, Grange the Younger is actually talking to the keep after it's sort, he sort of found the heart of the keep. Um, it was really, that was really interesting to me. And that was really, um, it kind of, it, it was both uh, to me personally, it was kind of moving. And it was also a really wonderful moment of kind of discovery of like, ooh, oh, that's what's going on, cool. Um, and that's what ends up, I think that's something that we all struggle with is like the things that we've done that we, we look back on and we're like, God, I wish I hadn't done that. And needing somebody to tell you that it's okay, that you're just human and you've got to, is your choice is to do better next time. You don't have to live up to this mythical figure. You can be human. Yes. Be forgiven for being human. Yeah. Oops. And then I guess the, when I first read this, because I were part of the same writing group, we did a lot of shared chapters. I don't recall ever seeing a chapter with the keep as a narrator. Was that a later decision that you made or was that from the get-go? No, that was much later. Um, as I wrote it initially, uh, the, the first full uh, draft of it, there was this really strong narrative voice that I was playing with that, you know, would make observations about interactions between the characters and things like that. Um, and I was experimenting with it both as narrator, you know, narrator with extra knowledge and the narrator that's sort of looking at this whole sequence from a distance and, and I gave uh, the book to somebody to be, beta read and they, they hated it, um, which, <laughs> you know, which is fine. Um, but, and they hated it not because of necessarily what it was doing, but they just didn't like that way of addressing the reader or, you know, be that presence of the narrative voice. But the thing that that made me do and was really useful for was that it made me think about why that narrative voice was there, what it was, who it was. And the minute I thought, wait a minute, what if it's the keep? Suddenly a whole new realm, like the layers of complexity within the work suddenly changed. Um, and that's really fascinating. All, you know, when you're working on something, I don't think, oh, God, I hope not everybody does, does this because otherwise I'm so far behind. I truly doubt that ever anybody sits down as like, I know all the layers of complexity that are going to be present in this work from the moment I set pen to paper and write the word once of once upon a time. You know, I truly doubt most authors have that. I'm pretty sure they discover that as they move through the process. Um, even if it's through the process of, of outlining at the beginning to, to understand what's happening. Um, and so with that, expansion of the potential for complexity in the relationship between Grange and the keep and what the keep is doing and where it's going. It was just really fascinating. And it also meant that I could play some interesting games with the things that things that this beta reader hated. I could suddenly play some games with them and go, they probably would still hate this, but now I can defend it. <laughs> but, but those games also became a fun way <laughs> Those games also became a fun way to start expanding on the life, the background life of this world, the world building, without it being an input, right? Because now you've got this person who's thinking through this character that's thinking through stuff from the history of this world 
not because I want to think about the history of the world, but because they're thinking, how does this help me figure out what it means to be a sentient creature and what my responsibilities are in the world? And it's thinking through it with a, and that is that the fact that that's the problem isn't necessarily laid out in the beginning, but it's clear that there's something that this character is thinking about. And so that gives it a drive um, as you go through it. Mm -hmm. Right. And then this is a little off topic, but I was, when I was reading this, I was thinking about, well, you're a very accomplished actor. And I was ever very kind of curious if you'd ever taken this novel and thought about what it would look like as a screenplay. So here's the really interesting thing about my being an actor and versus my being a writer. I'm, I don't, I, I don't think in terms of screenplays and scripts. Mm -hmm. it, and it's really weird that I don't like, I, I'm picturing, I'm, I picture everything that's happening and I, I can tell you what the different characters look like and all that good stuff. But I don't think in terms of, oh, well, this is how you would stage it, or this is how it would look on screen, or this is how, for whatever reason, I don't think that way. Um, and I've never almost, I've written a couple of things for the stage, but more, more out of necessity than, than because, oh, I really want to write this thing. You know, I've rewritten stuff that I've been working on and, and whatnot. Um, you know, because Shakespeare, he didn't know what he was doing. Um, <laughs> What's no, an I elbow? Not, <laughs> no, I have not rewritten Shakespeare, um, but I've rewritten. I've had to, you know, when I'm working with on a show, sometimes there's bits that you have to re, you have to change. Um, but I haven't thought about that. And every now and then, I do think because so it's so common these days that the big success for a book or a book series is to be made into a film or a TV series. I do sometimes think about it like, what would it look like? But I, I, I truly doubt I'd want to be the person who, who wrote the screenplay or the script. Like I'd be like, you, you, you write it. Oh, and then I would, I mean, I mean, I'd want input, obviously, being like, no, they're not the main character. You've got this wrong. Um, but I, I'd want to be able to watch for that sort of stuff. But I don't know that I'd want to be the person to break all the scenes down that way and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. The interesting thing is. The way it's the way this particular novel is written, the scenes break down pretty easily. Like, okay, now we're in so and so's perspective. It's this scene. This is what happens. Boom, boom. Now we're in, now this other story. This is the other person. Scene breaks down, and you could you could break it down pretty easily. Um, and then once Grange is in the keep, it's uh, <laughs> it's all one set. <laughs> Definitely saves a little time. <laughs> Though the keep is supposed to be so vast that I have a bad feeling that it'd be one of those things that, oh, we got to make another room. <laughs> another look. Wait, he has to have another courtyard that's different from the other courtyard? Oh my gosh. Production. Creative. Oh, well. <laughs> oh gosh. Yeah. That, no, that's a good perspective. Um, um, where was I? What was I thinking about? Oh, this is your first book, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. How's it feel? Would you have done anything differently than you did? 
So uh, the publication of the book came about because uh, I won a contest on the website, Ajoara, where they were like, hey, if you win the contest, we will publish your book, we'll, we'll help you edit it, we'll get you an editor, we'll get you a cover, and we'll do some advertising. Um, so that was the package that I won. And they also, though, wanted the work out there as quickly as they could get it. Um, so, you know, there was a little bit of like, hey, can, how quickly can you do it? And so my feeling after it was all said and done is that I kind of wish I'd gone through it once more before I sent it off to the, for the final editing. Um, I think they're like taking a month away from it and then come back to it and done one more run through. But I also realized as I was doing it that the pace at which I work on that part of the editing is much slower than I anticipated. Like I'm like, I would give a dead, like I'll be done by, I'll be done by this. And it would take me like three times as long because it's just, it was, it wasn't that it was necessarily hard or, uh, you know, something that I lacked the skill to do. It just wasn't something that I was as enthusiastic about once I was at that point where, Hey, the, it's pretty much mostly done. So wait, don't I, my brain wants to write this other thing now. <laughs> Come back here, brain. Um, and so that's where I think that, you know, the process of learning how to write, how to write, not, not how to get the words on the paper, but how to relate to the projects that you're working on, I think is important, um, which mm -hmm. I'm still learning. Um, yeah. and, and continuing to develop. I guess about how long would you say this work took you? Depends on if you're talking about time spent working on it or time since I first conceived of it. Uh, because I've gone through phases on and off in my life where I've done a fair amount of writing. And so in, in, in the, about the last four years, I've been pretty serious about it. And, oh, I guess I should say more than pretty serious about it. Doesn't, you know, I did write a whole book and, you know, publish it. You are a published author now. <laughs> so I guess, You're I, there. Guess, <laughs> I guess call it saying I was pretty serious about it. It might be selling myself short, <laughs> but this particular piece, I, you know, in order to get it written and done, I chose to do it for NaNoWriMo. So like getting from point A to point B, beginning to end, I used NaNoWriMo to accomplish that. But there was, you know, a couple of years of working through it and several months, you know, to get it into shape to put online or to, to publish. But then I initially wrote, like I initially started the story ages ago, a good, the more I think about it, the more I'm realizing I'm wrong. I, I, I was saying to you uh, before we started that it was about 15 years ago, but it's probably more like 20 years ago that I first wrote a complete treatment of the story mm -hmm. that was about 60 pages long. Um, and, you know, I sh showed it to another writing group and they were like, oh yeah, this is fun, this is interesting. And they had, they had comments and, and a lot of the, like the general shape of the story was there. Um, and then as I walked through it, NaNoWriMo, more, more interesting things started to happen and it became more interesting, more complex, more layered. Um, and then I, I don't, 
it's hard to say how much of an influence that 20 year ago draft had a couple of years ago when I was doing NaNoWriMo because I mean, it was there and I was reading it and there, there were a lot of bits of it that I read and I went, you just wrote that to get from point A to point B. So I can't actually use that, toss it, <laughs> right? And there was a, there was a lot of that in, in it. Um, but, and, and there was a lot of that also in the NaNoWriMo version that had to get either tossed. Well, you gotta hit those 50,000 words. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I got, I got well past 50,000 words on the NaNoWriMo version. So, <laughs> but, but that's, but that's what happens when you already know where everything's going and you, you mm -hmm. can just write and you're like, okay, this is where it's going to kind of go. I, I, so even if you wander farther afield, and I guess this is an argument for outlining that I hadn't considered um, because I never outlined, uh, but I, in this case, had that draft, that, that treatment. I was like, well, outline. yeah. Even if I go, even if I go way over here, I know where I'm coming back to. So there is there is something to be said for that, um, and it probably helped keep me on the straight and narrow as I was like, just gotta write some more words and see what happens. Gotcha. All right, very cool. And then I guess I uh, got one last question for you. So you've kind of given us this really cool world with world with objects of power. Grange having like learned this lesson of the keep, unlocked all the secrets, partnering potentially with this hero, maybe a love triangle teased at. Uh, is there a sequel coming? And if so, when? Um, so when I first conceived of the story, it was a standalone book. And everybody who I talked to about self-publishing or, or e-publishing says, you need to have a sequel, you need to have a sequel. And as I was writing it, I was like, okay, I can figure out, I know what these sequels would be. I know what the plot of the next two books of this series about Grange would be. Um, I know what they would consist of um, in a super rough outline way. The fact is though, I didn't come up with that until you know, I was halfway through with the book. <laughs> and, you know, I left all the, all the pieces are there in, in the book now to set that up, which is, which is all I needed. Um, but I like to think that generally the story is complete. Uh, a lot of the, it's interesting, a lot of the reviews talk about how, oh, it left me with more questions than answers. I was like, oh, well, that's kind of good because I'm glad that you're interested in figuring out what's going, going on. But uh, from the human side, the story that Grange was coming across, the story that Grange was struggling with has been told. And, and so on that front, it's a complete tale. Um, but there's def definitely room for more to happen in this world, more to happen with these characters. Knowing what that is, but not having actually started to step into it, I think I may have a couple thousand words down for what I want to do for the second ver second novel, um, but I I'm looking at how I want to do it, and and I'm thinking about how how much I want to push some of the narrative styles that I used, like switching of perspective and stuff like that, versus how much I want to go back to something more traditional, and one of the things I'm kind of debating doing is having the second novel actually look, it wouldn't be, but it would almost look like a series of short stories where 
you'd see these characters struggling with something and then in would come our heroes that we recognize from before and they would help deal with it and move on. And in the course of this, you would watch what, what's happening between the heroes and how they're, what their attitudes are toward what they're doing changing from story to story. The difficulty about that is that to make that work, each story has to be engaging. <laughs> you know, you can't, you can't have a clunker in there. And, and that also means you have to have different, a different idea as to what problematic object of power has shown up and what problems is it causing and how is it being utilized or misutilized or, and I have a list of things that I'm like, okay, this could work, this could work, this could work. And, but I've also, I also realized that for me, the terrible things that went wrong with the objects of power wasn't the most interesting thing about them. The most, there were other, how people dealt with them was more interesting. So coming up with what those objects of powers might, might be and what horrible things they might do is totally off my radar. So I have a small list and it's depressingly small of ideas oh, for no. horrible things that could happen. And I'm like, oh, but I need to think of more horrible things that would happen and why? <laughs> and so and so there needs to be a there needs to be a a couple of a couple of rounds of that and figuring out what's mm -hmm. going on there. And um and then and if that's the way I were to do it, then the third book would follow a more traditional narrative style, um, which would almost probably come as a shock to readers by that point. But I don't like the idea of just doing things the way they're done because they're done that way. Um, mm -hmm. I don't wanna just do things differently for the sake of doing things differently either. I want there to be a reason. And there would be a reason for watching that that way. Um, if I did short story after short story, but I'm very interested in the idea of taking familiar territory and making it seem unfamiliar. Mm -hmm. um, I actually had a, a, a friend say it when they read The Keep, they were like, it's like you took every cliche and twisted them just enough so they weren't a cliche anymore. And I took that as really high praise. That's high praise. Yeah, that is. And I then took it as my artist statement on my website. Like it's not, it's not exactly that, but I use that to develop my artist statement because I realized that's what I want to do. I want to take things that are super familiar. Like, Hey, I, I know what's going to happen here. Oh, Oh, that's not quite the way I thought it was going to go. Like, I'm still in a familiar world. I'm still seeing, I'm still seeing the things that I like as a reader or whatnot. You know, it's got this aspect or that aspect, the things that I would expect, but something different is happening because I know that's what I like is the, is the, as interesting as something radically different, an entirely different magic system, a world that, you know, where everybody walks upside down or what have you. Um, those are fascinating and cool but there's something that we lose when we stop exploring the things that we already know. And we don't take advantage of the fact that there's an accepted vocabulary. And then when you play with that, there's something much, I think there can be something a lot deeper. And I think that's part of what, not that I'm comparing myself to, the, to them at all, but 
there's something about that in Tolkien, right? Because there's a familiarity to the idea of elves or, or halflings and dwarves. And, you know, they, that all came out of the mythology of, of the, the land around him. And it makes the idea at, so what he did is he took that and he twisted it around a little bit. And he said, okay, rather than thinking the elves live in the hills and we don't see them, they only come out sometimes. He's like, they used to live there and they've moved on. Our world has moved on, right? And so he took that idea and just turned it ever so slightly so that it was an entirely different, became something entirely different, which we now accept as canon, right? We're like, oh yeah, you know, elves go off there, you know, what, you know. But then you take that and you, or the way things have developed around that, those, those worlds and start to play with that, you know, okay, if magic's accepted and magic, you know, creates items that cause problems, you know, which is a classic D&D trope, right? You know, the wand of wonder or, you know, the things that, you know, the belt that gets too tight on people or whatever, um, you know, cursed objects right out of D&D. Oh, yeah. And so, well, but why and where and what's going on there? And, and once you start playing with it, then you're suddenly like, oh, I'm, I'm totally in this, Technically, I'm totally in a D&D world, but totally not. <laughs> like, like. Well, it's your own twist on it, right? It's your own interpretation. Yeah. And then adding in that human element, that connection, the loss, the forgiveness, the high expectations. Well, I do think, I do think that that's one of the things that, for me as an author, I like to think that what I'm generally uh, good at is you know, staying in touch with the people, the what's going on inside the people. Um, and maybe it's because of my experience as a performer and, you know, having spoken the words of other really great authors um, or, or having to ha had to analyze what's going on inside a character's head um, in order to try to portray it. I don't, I don't know. Um, but I like to think that's one of my strengths is that I don't tend, I don't think I have characters who do things that make people go, what, why the hell would they ever do that? Um, I think people watch it and if they're, if they're paying attention, they're like, no, that totally makes sense. That's what that character would do. Um, or, or it's, it's an, it's not a reach to say that's what that character would do. It's like, oh, okay. And once the evidence shows up, you're like, of course they did that because that's where their brain was. Um, yeah. I'll, I'll give my two cents as a reader of your works. I think you do justice to your characters. Thank you. I appreciate it. Of course. Well, Bill, thank you so much for chatting with me on the first ever Mountain Review podcast. <laughs> As I and, put up the yeah. down signal. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think that's what we have to do now. Oh, well, very good. Thank you so much for sharing your book with us, The Keep, and letting me ask you all sorts of questions. Uh, yeah. For you anybody who might be listening, go check it out, read it, make your own opinions, ask your own questions, and we'll be back later. You no longer listen to a poem, a podcast. You no longer listen to a poem, a podcast. You no longer listen to a poem, a podcast. Goodbye, good night, good and